Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather, to look at your word, to remember what you did out of your great love for us, that you loved us so much that you did not just let us perish in our sin, but that you sent your only Son, that whoever would believe in him would be saved. So we pray tonight, Lord, that we would remember what the purpose of Christmas is and that our hearts and minds would be set on Christ who lives and reigns forever. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 7. Most of you are here because you celebrate Christmas in one way or another. And if you were to go to the mall you'd find that everybody almost is celebrating Christmas in one way or another. You know, some people are looking forward to Christmas because they're looking forward to the presents that they're going to to get. Uh, Somebody else might be looking forward to just having a couple days off from work. Another person uh, might be looking forward to Christmas because that's a time when family is going to be coming in from out of town and they want to be able to spend time with their family and they're looking forward to that. And meanwhile, some people celebrate Christmas for a religious reason. And I don't know if there's a country in the world in which Christmas is more celebrated than it is in the United States. Maybe, in part at least, because it's close to the end of the year, or maybe in part because all the best businesses sell all their best products at all the best prices this time of year during the Advent season. But for so many This is just another holiday. This is just another day off. It's just another day to spend time with family. It's really no more significant to so many people than a day like Valentine's Day or a day like the 4th of July. But it hasn't always been that way. See, Advent, Christmas, it it didn't start as a secular or pagan holiday. It, it, it hasn't always been a time when people focused on material things or, or consumerism or even family as much as it is traditionally viewed as a time to remember and to celebrate the Advent, the coming of Jesus Christ. So I ask you tonight, why are you celebrating Christmas? Why do you celebrate Christmas year in and year out? What is your purpose in celebrating Christmas? You know, in the midst of all the, the busyness and all the commotion that starts at midnight or sometimes earlier now, the, the night after Thanksgiving, uh, how much thought do you tend to give to the real purpose of the season? And when I ask this, I I ask this not because I'm trying to send you on a guilt trip. Uh, I'm not trying to be the Grinch who steps in and tries to make your Christmas less joyful. Rather, I'm asking this question in order that your joy would be fuller, that that your joy would be deeper, that your joy would be more objective, that it would actually be based on a concrete reality, something real, by asking questions that relate to your priorities into the thoughts and to the intentions of your hearts. It was the great preacher of yesteryear, Henry Ironside, who said, quote, The incarnation of our Lord is not merely a doctrinal tenet about which theologians of different schools may hold different views. It is a glorious reality, a wondrous fact, apart from which there could be no salvation for sinful men. 
end quote. Now, you know, if, if you ever watch a couple theologians, you will know that uh, they can differ on all kinds of stuff. Even the most theologically sharp, theologically acute uh, theologians can differ on all kinds of stuff. One will say that we should, uh, you know, baptize babies. One will say, you know, we shouldn't baptize anyone until they're old enough to make a profession of faith. Uh, one will say that there is a rapture, and another will say there, there is no rapture. And the list of things that Christians can, can differ on goes on and on and on. And it's a beautiful thing that, despite having all these, these different views, these different opinions on, on different things, both of these two people can equally be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another through the shed blood of Christ, the atoning work of Christ. But there's no disagreement when it comes to Christmas. There's no disagreement about what happened, what we're celebrating. There's no disagreement about the incarnation. There's no disagreement whatsoever among Christians of the historical fact that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, humbled himself, took on flesh, being born fully God and fully man. We're talking about a foundational, fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, the doctrine that provides us with the reason that we celebrate today. Because it is a doctrine that would mean our certain doom and our certain destruction if it were not so. The birth of this baby in a manger isn't like the birth of any other baby because there's never been any other baby who would be born as the Savior of the world. God incarnate. The passage that I would ask us to start out by reflecting on tonight is actually in the Old Testament. It's Micah chapter 5 verse 2, which came about five, uh, 700 years prior to the birth of Christ, where the prophet Micah said, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, writes the prophet, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. It should be with amazement and awe that we see that this baby being born in Bethlehem is none other than the one who, as Micah said, whose going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That's amazing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. We can't sing that of any other person in all of human history, by the way. Luke, whose testimony we're going to be looking at a little bit tonight, he's recognized even by modern uh, secular historians as one of the greatest ancient historians. He records the birth of Christ for us. Let's look at verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2. This is what he says. He says, now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, 
the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. The thing that stands out to me about this passage, the first thing that jumps out at me, is that it's all very straight and to the point. He doesn't elaborate. It, there, there's not a whole lot of excitement that you, that you catch in his tone here. I mean, Luke doesn't give us every possible detail. He doesn't elaborate a whole lot. It's as if he's giving us a very, very minimal amount of information here, a very minimal account. I mean, could he have provided fewer details? I, I suppose he could have more or less given us uh, more or, or less detail. But he presents the birth of Christ in a very plain, very straightforward way without adding his own intention of recording it, without adding any excitement or elaboration into the text. But in an age where fake news is a thing, we should be glad for the way that Luke records this without any hyperbole, without any exaggeration, no embellishing of it. He just gives us the facts. And if you're wondering what the big deal is, it would seem that you've missed it. It would seem that even in the midst of this plain thing, this plain section of text that seems so ordinary, if you don't see what's so amazing about it, you've missed the most important thing that's ever happened. Because this isn't just a big deal. I mean, President Trump doing something, that's a big deal. The government shutting down for a couple days, that's a big deal. This is not just a big deal. This is everything. It's the Son of God demonstrating the fullness of the love of God to save the people of God from the wrath of God in order that we can have eternal peace and fellowship with God. Amazing. So often what God does on the surface can seem very, very ordinary. When a person comes to faith in Christ for the first time, they might go home and the people who are often around him might not notice that there's been any change in his life. But in receiving salvation, that person has literally crossed over from death to life. He was dead in his sins. He was unable to please God the day before. But now he's converted. And he's alive. He's got this new nature. He's got this new heart that can respond to God, that can please God. And on the surface, just on the surface level, it seems very plain, very ordinary, very unspectacular. But when you understand what happens in conversion, you understand that conversion is miraculous. It is amazing. This babe in a manger is mysteriously spectacular. He's both fully God and thus he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's able and qualified to ransom and redeem fallen sinners being fully God. But he's also fully human. And thus he's able to feel. He's able to hurt. He's able to cry. He's able to, to hunger and thirst. And though the historical account that Luke gives us is very plain, we should understand that this was the single most significant event in human history. Nothing else is even close. God himself took on human flesh. That alone should give us a deep sense of awe and wonder, shouldn't it? 
And this babe who was the fullness of God in human flesh wasn't born in a palace where kings and royalty are born. He wasn't even born in a home. No, he he was born in a lowly manger. His mother, Mary, wasn't from a rich family. She wasn't an affluent person. Her husband was himself what we would call a blue-collar worker. He was just a, a lowly carpenter. Nothing prestigious, just a carpenter. But in, in all of the circumstances of Christ's birth, I think that the least that we can say in all fairness is that it lacks what the world would call spectacular. It lacks what the world would expect had they known Had they understood that this babe was actually the King of kings and the Lord of lords? For them, as far as they're concerned, what they can see as as they're looking for a place to stay is it's just another woman with just another baby. It's all very unspectacular as far as the world is concerned. I mean, think about how much hype there is around the pregnancy of, uh, of Meghan Markle. There's so much hype, there's so much excitement, there's so much speculation. How much more hype, how much more excitement should there be for God himself being born in human flesh? But let's consider not only that God would condescend in the incarnation, becoming just as human as you and I are, but that he would condescend to among the lowest and the poorest elements of the social world. When we consider the conditions and the circumstances that Jesus, our Lord, was born into, it gives us a whole new understanding of what it means to be humble, doesn't it? And this should have a profound effect on our lives. Think about what we are inclined to do. Think about what our flesh is always inclined to do. What, what do we do by nature I mean, if you read books on how to be successful, on how to be influential, you know, you, th- these books will encourage you to associate with the higher levels of society, associate and, and, and mingle with the elite, right? People who are affluent, people who are encouraging, uplifting, positive. And then Paul says in Romans twelve sixteen, associate with the lowly. Part of the beauty of the birth of Christ is seen in realizing that that's exactly what God did when he came for us. He associated with the lowly. He associated with the downcast, the lowest elements of society, the rebels, the dirty sinners, people like you and me. The very opposite of what all these books on how to be successful would tell us to do. And so as we ponder the great love of God that's seen in his humble incarnation, it should drive us to follow the example set by Christ. Absolutely. Paul instructs the Philippians, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so Luke tells us that the time came when Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that a census should be taken on everyone within the parameters of the Roman Empire. Why? Because they're going to they're gonna tax everybody. They, they need money. They need to, you, know, you heard about Roman roads, right? They're going to build some roads or they need taxes for something. And as the ruler of the ancient world, he decreed that everybody should go back to their hometown and register uh, from where, where they're from. And while it might look like this was his decision, we know better, don't we? 
Because we know what Micah 5.2 says. We know that this was not Caesar's decree. This was God's decree. Through Caesar. God used Caesar in this way to decree this, the census so that Joseph and Mary would go to Bethlehem. So we have to wonder, by the way, when they realize where they have to be going and how far along Mary is in her pregnancy, we have to wonder if they, they kind of looked at each other and said, hmm, what do you think about that passage in Micah? Going to Bethlehem. Now, I don't know. We, we don't know if they realized it because the text doesn't actually tell us. But what it does tell us is that they went and they seemed to be very unprepared for Mary to be going into labor. But God was in no way unprepared for this. This is the event that he had ordained from before the foundations of the world. Every righteous man in history had awaited this night, this miraculous event, from Adam to Enoch to Abraham to Moses to Isaiah to Daniel to Malachi to John the Baptist. Man could not raise himself up to God. But God, in his spectacular love and mercy, lowered himself to man to bring salvation to all who would repent and believe in him, who would trust in him for their salvation. And just as humanity looks to the sun to start lengthening the days during this time of year, so too the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, calls all men to look away from the sun which lights the day and to look to Him, the light of the world, who says, He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He brings us to the promise of eternal fellowship with God in a world where there will be no more sun and no more moon, but that the Lord himself will be our light and there will be no more darkness, no more night. So let's observe Christmas this year with gladness in our hearts, knowing that the God who himself is the source of light and life has come for us to teach Yes. To set an example for us to follow? Yes. But above and beyond all those things, he came in order to stand in the place of wretched sinners like me, who could never find salvation on their own, who could never even seek for salvation on their own, but would trust wholly in him as their substitute before God, the one who would take their sin and shame upon himself in their place clothing us in robes of God's own perfect righteousness. Christmas is a day when we should be the most grateful unto God most high and the most gracious also to our fellow man, even those who we would even maybe call enemies. Set your minds on this, that this event was worthy of the celebration of all the angels of heaven who themselves didn't even need to be redeemed. How much more should we, as people who did need to be redeemed, celebrate this birth of Jesus with thankfulness and gladness and joy overflowing from our hearts? The Son of God demonstrates the fullness of the love of God and the grace of God to save the people of God from the wrath of God in order that we could have eternal peace and fellowship with God. So come. 
Let's adore him. Christ the Lord, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That is what Christmas is all about. It's not just about knowing about Jesus. It is about knowing Jesus and following him. I'll close with this from the gospel according to John. Our next song is actually from this passage. John chapter 1, verses 14 to 17 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For all his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In this babe born in a manger, we find the fullness of grace and truth that reconciles us to a holy God. For those who have not placed your faith for salvation in Christ, you must see, friend, that there is nothing in the world more worth doing and believing. But for those who have repented and placed faith in Christ, let's understand and let's remember that there is nothing more worthy of our celebration than the fullness of grace and truth that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord and our King who humbled himself and took on flesh. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you for a season in which we remember what you did for us in sending Jesus to stand in the place of sinners. And the way that you sent him, Lord, not into a high place, but into the lowest of places. Oh, Father, thank you for such a gracious gift, such a gracious example of humility. And we pray, Father, that as we consider these things, that our hearts would overflow with gladness and joy and thanksgiving for what you have given us in Christ Jesus. This Christmas, Lord, help us remember what Christmas is about, that Christ would be glorified. In his name we pray, amen.